Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim, and it's my privilege to share with you from God's Word this morning out of Matthew chapter 5, if you want to take your Bible, your electronic device, and find yourself there. Uh, there was a time when I was a young adult. Some of you might find that hard to believe, but it's true. There was a time when I was a young adult, sort of figuring out my faith, moved out of the home, living with other guys. Um, I had worked hard, saved hard, so much so that uh, I was able to buy the motorcycle that I had dreamed of. In those days, the ticket was a Kawasaki 1000. Um, I had one uh, bought that was custom made, and I loved it until it was stolen. I, uh, regular weeknight, I had parked it in the, in the garage, sort of downstairs, and when I got to go to work in the morning, it wasn't there. And the police could do little about it. I had put it out of my mind because of that. And then, I don't know, it was a few weeks later, I received a phone call just out of the blue from a painter of a body shop in another town that I happened to know. And he knew I'd had my bike stolen. And he called me and said, Tim, I may have your uh, bike's gas tank here um, that's been dropped off to be repainted. So went, had a look at it, um, pretty sure it was mine, but couldn't prove it was mine. So of course the police couldn't do anything about it, but maybe my friends and I could. At least we would investigate. Jesus said it's impossible that offenses will come. So we're going to experience, it, experience things in our life when other people are going to do things that really are bad, irritate us. Somebody's going to cut you off on the road. A friend's going to backstab you. Uh, maybe someone you really trust is going to break their promise or somebody's going to steal from you. And our natural response to that is going to, it's, it's to get even, to get some sort of vengeance or revenge of some sort so that they, they learn their lesson, right? Because if we don't teach them a lesson, who's going to teach them a lesson? But Jesus said there's a, there's a better way. And he says that in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which we're looking at this morning. It's the largest record of Jesus' teaching that we have. And so uh, if you are going to, to study what the most influential person on, that has ever lived on this planet had to say, this is where you would go, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Matthew is one of the four writers of Gospels. We call them, the Gospel means good news, and there were four writers, each one had a particular audience in mind when they wrote their gospel. So they had an intention that was different from the others when they were writing. So that, that's how it is. We write differently to a, an Italian father-in-law than we would to our German aunt, right? Different people, different situations. And so each gospel writer writes with a different slant, with a different intent, because he's writing to different people. Matthew is writing to the Jews, and so he has a specific intention and writes a specific way. He wants to show them that Jesus is, is the sacred promised one that their Old Testament pointed to. And that's why he begins in chapter 1 of Matthew with a genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And on it goes. And Matthew does this because he wants to show that the physical lineage of Jesus can be traced all the way back to King David and to Abraham knowing that out of that would come the Messiah, the Savior, the King. And Matthew so wants to show that Jesus is that King. 
And so as you read his gospel, you'll see this phrase, and this was done so the scripture was fulfilled. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, Matthew is being very careful, especially to a Jewish mind who so treasured the Old Testament, that they would know that what's happening in Jesus' life is not by accident, but he is deliberately, things are happening to him, and he's causing things to happen that fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament in him. The king has come. And we are told in Matthew chapter 1, after he finishes his genealogy, that this king has come to do something very specific, and his very name will declare that. In Matthew 1.21, it says, They shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That word sins means the, the consequences of missing the mark of God's standard, of God's holiness. Somehow this Jesus, this king, is going to save the people from the consequences of missing the mark. And at the end of his gospel, Matthew shows how Jesus accomplished that. And it's shocking. This king dies. Like it seems like all is lost. But then in this, this twist of plot that, that's amazing, the king resurrects to life. Jesus rises again from the dead and apparent defeat was in fact in reality a victory and so to hear Matthew's gospel in, in its entirety, by the end of it, we become aware that this teaching that we're looking at right now, called the Sermon of the Mount, has been encased, it's bookended in the person of Jesus and his mission that he will save his people from his sins and has in fact accomplished that by going to the cross, dying, and rising from the dead in victory. And what that means is the conduct and the lifestyle that we're learning about in the Sermon on the Mount is not to be heard as something that we, we should live in order to become accepted children of God, but it's a lifestyle that we live because we already are when we put our faith and our trust in Him. And so Jesus says to His followers in, in uh, chapter 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. And so people who put their trust in Jesus, they are people who will act and live a certain way that becomes salt, a good influence in their community, and light. They hit the mark, not miss it, but they do so not to become citizens in God's kingdom, but because they already are. And as they do, they find that they are blessed, and so is the world that they live in. And we find out in, as we're looking at Jesus' words today, that one of the most remarkable ways that kingdom citizens live is in how they respond to those conflicts when they are wronged. Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. <laughs> Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, that's easy. Let's just go. Father, this morning I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would come and take these challenging words of Jesus 
and drill them into our hearts in ways, Lord, that bring about the life and liberty that you want to bring to us this morning. Thank you. Thinking about this passage, I was reminded that there are so many biblical phrases that we use in our English language today all the time. Uh, out of Matthew's gospel, phrases like this, signs, sign of the times, straight and narrow, oh, I'll wash my hands of this matter, oh, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, oh, that's just the blind leading the blind. These are all common expressions that we use in our English language that come right out of Matthew's gospel. And so probably you've heard of the phrase, an eye for an eye. And it's right here in the passage that we're looking at. This phrase is used three times in the Old Testament. I'm going to read you some of the, the excerpts from that. Exodus 21. This is God speaking to his children. When, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall be surely fine, as the woman's husband shall oppose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm... Then you shall pay, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24, whoever takes a human life, they shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life, make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. In Deuteronomy, the third record of that phrase, it's talking about a malicious witness. If such a person arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So when Jesus, on this mountain, speaking to his followers, Jews, when he says, you have heard that it was said, they knew automatically Jesus was talking about the law given by God through Moses and they knew instantly what he was referring to. But, Jesus says, I say unto you. When, when Jesus uses the word but, it's not that he's necessarily, uh, he's not necessarily abrogating the law, but he's clarifying. And then Jesus extrapolates it to impossible places. In the Old Testament, as we read those passages, I hope you got the fact that the phrase eye for an eye occurs in sort of a judicial community setting. It was not to be the personal exercise of retaliation or vengeance. It happened in court. It happened in community. Think about the way we escalate our conflicts with one another. You know, a person hurts you with a stone. You want to crush them with a boulder. It, it, our, conflicts, our, our conflicts just seem to, you know, we want to up one, the other person, and, and they, they develop and they grow. You may recall a, a couple of years ago, there was uh, this mayor in a small city outside of Montreal who wanted to one-up his wife on her birthday. They had been divorced and were involved in a brutal custody battle and, and money, so 
he decided, because he owned an excavation company, to drop a uh, several-ton boulder on her front lawn, wishing her a happy birthday. He said she's always wanted a big rock, and he wanted to give her the gift on her special day. We escalate. The law made sure that judgment was equitable, and it called for the exercise of justice in a predictable and equitable way. The law took the emotion out of people's wanting to respond with emotion and with retribution, and it placed it on the community in justice. This was and is good for society. We read in the New Testament, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, this. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, speaking of the government, the rulers, do not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So imagine if there was no punishment for crime in Canada. People could just do what they wanted. There's no law, there's no infringement on anybody for committing crimes. It would be a horrible, chaotic scene. And we've seen even recently with just the absence of police and some of the fires where people have had to evacuate and police are busy, they're tied up helping people escape and whatnot. Criminals come in and they ransack vacant homes. Like, it's really, really sad. The Bible tells us the law is not made for the righteous, those who want to do good and are good in Christ, but for the unrighteous. But here's the thing. Though we may want to when we're wronged, when we're offended, and our emotions are driving us, we want to make things even, it is never for us as citizens of God's kingdom to exact vengeance, to take retribution into our own hands. Jesus says, but I say to you, it's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So think about it. In the Old Testament, the law was given to curb retaliation, that it had a limit. Jesus goes beyond curbing and calls us to give grace, as we're going to see. Don't resist. Don't come against. Don't be adversarial to the person who is against you. And Jesus is going to give us four examples here. All of them are personal, and all of them touch on things that sometimes we hold very dearly. A right to be respected. A right to, be, to feel secure and have security. A right to make our own choices, self-determination. And our right for possessions, property. We begin in verse 39 with respect. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So if two people are facing each other and they're in an argument... Typically, a person would be right-handed, and if they're, gonna, if they're going to slap a person, they are going to slap them on what cheek? It would be the left cheek. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what Jesus is probably referring to is a backhanded slap against the right cheek. A Roman slave is quoted as saying, a slave would rather be thrashed with a whip than slapped with the back of his master's hand. Why? Because in that culture, a backhanded slap was the most insulting, degrading thing that you could do to another person. I think for us today, it would be like somebody spitting on another person. So we are talking about respect. We are not talking about physical injury here. Jesus is not saying if somebody hits you with a shovel... 
on the right side of your face, turn to him the other side, and let them hit you again. Jesus is not saying that. This is about respect. So have you ever had someone disrespect you? Have you? Are you alive? Do you live in a family? Do you have brothers? Do you have sisters? Do you work at a workplace? Are you married? So you're going to be in situations as we live, as we breathe, as we, as we just mingle with people where, where somebody, someone's going to disrespect us. They're going to insult us. They're not going to give us the dignity that we feel we're entitled to deserve. It's bound to happen. It makes you mad. How do you respond? Do you go online, employ social media to tell people why you should be respected and why they should be looked down upon? If you're on the road and somebody cuts you off, do you do the pass, the break? There's a better way. Jesus says, offer them the other cheek. What does that say? It says, as a kingdom citizen of God, you know who you are. You know that your identity is found in who Jesus is and what he's done for you and his love for you. You don't need to allow someone else's opinion in insulting you to affect you, where you, you give it credence by responding to that insult. In fact, some people think that in offering the other cheek, you're offering the other person another chance, another chance at relationship. You're giving grace. An opportunity to start all over. It's completely grace-filled. Instead of ramping up the tension and escalating it, it's different. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now we're talking about when someone wants to take away your security and threaten that. Now we know that people in different parts of the world dress differently, so Scottish men wear kilts. Good for them. The basic piece of a, of a first century Jew was called a tunic. So like today, maybe for a guy, it might be, you know, skinny jeans and a tight t-shirt. For them, it was a tunic. It was more like a loose-fitting sack when they bought it. I think it, 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 it didn't come with a v-neck, so that, that way you knew it was new. So you'd sort of buy this sacky-looking thing, and you'd cut your, a v into it for the neck, and there'd be holes for the arms, and it, it would come from the top of the body, and for a man, it might only go down to his knees. Generally, they wore a shorter garment than the woman. And around that tunic, a man would wear what they called a girdle. Men wore girdles. Go figure. It was a waistband made of leather or coarse cloth. And so if a man had to run or he's working, he can gather up his tunic and tuck it inside the girdle so he had more freedom to move around. Over that tunic... If the weather warranted it and or uh, the person was wealthy enough, they would wear a cloak. And the cloak was so important. Think of all the jackets you have at home right now. If you were to go dismantly do an inventory of the jackets that you have at home and what you have to choose from, the blue one, the brown one, the red one, the yellow one, the long one, the short one, the nylon one, the leather one. In, in their day, a person might only have one cloak, especially if you're poor, one outer garment. So it might be the cloak was their only form of protection. And, and it was so valuable, it was considered a, a piece of security. So if, if I wanted to borrow from you, I would give you my cloak during the day as a piece of security because a person would know, well, he's, 
He's going to be good for his loan because I've got his cloak. That's how important it was to him. But it had to be given back to the person by nightfall because that cloak also doubled as a blanket to sleep in. It's so much less than we have today. So the cloak represents security. It represents protection. It represents comfort. Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The context is the courts. It's all about justice. The principle, the principle is, so if someone gets at you in an unjust way, what are you going to do? Are you going to get even? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's uh, Paul writing to the church, and among one of the many things that were not going so well in that church, there's a lawsuit going on between two Christian brothers, and, and Paul chastises them for, for that would even go on in a Christian community. He says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? Do you have to go through the, the law courts out there? You can't even settle that among yourselves. And in, in the midst of that conversation, he says, why don't you rather let someone defraud you? In other words, why don't you allow yourself to be treated unjustly? Let them have your cloak. That word let is a permission word. It's, I think sometimes it's um, translated even as forgiveness. It's the absorption of a loss. So when my motorcycle was stolen, we investigated. We had a pretty good idea who had stolen it. It wasn't just sort of one person. It was a group, and I had a group. And you can imagine how that started to go. The conflict escalated, and I almost lost my head to do some crazy things. But in the midst of that, God came, and with great conviction, told me to let it go. Absorb the loss. It was a big step for me. But obviously I had more maturing to do because I didn't offer them my car. I'll let the bike go. I'm not offering you my car. Verse 41, self-determination. I remember I was living in Vancouver and I received this envelope from the government in the mail. I opened it up and I wasn't that familiar with how our law courts work, but I was invited to be a member of a jury, to do jury, jury duty. I thought, what? What is this? I was church planting at the time. We were extremely busy, lots going on in our lives. And as I read you know, through the lines, I realized that I might be called to serve on a jury for a case that we knew was going to take a long time. It was quite uh, in the news and it wouldn't be a simple case. This could really tie up like one, two, three months of my life. And I just, I just felt almost angry that they would demand that of my time. And yet our government has the right to conscript people. You can, you can write in and say, uh, say it would cause you hardship, but our government has the right to conscript you and, as a citizen of our country and to serve in that capacity. Imagine a Jew in the first century who is under the rule of Roman law and, and, and can't stand the Romans, and a Roman soldier had the right to conscript you and demand that you carry his pack for a certain distance. And sometimes their packs are like 60 to 85 pounds. I mean, that's hard, it's inconvenient, and you hate it. Do you get the context now of what Jesus is saying? If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. 
So in that job, in your family, wherever you are under authority, and you're being asked to do something that the other person really has the right to ask you to do, but you don't want to do it, it's against your own self-determination, your choices, what are you going to do? See, when we go the second mile, when we do what's expected and then some, you just totally mess up everybody's world. People don't know what to do with that. Imagine, I, you know, you're, you're still at home, you're going to school, you're in middle school or high school, and your mom asks you to clean your room. I mean, just imagine, this is hypothetical. Your mom asks you to clean your room, and you not only clean your room, you clean your sister's room. I mean, what's your mom going to do with that? So you, you have a supervisor who's over you, and they don't really like you that much, and you know that, so they give you the hard jobs, and they ask you to write this report that you know is going to take lots of time and lots of effort, and, and you do the report, but not only do the report, but you add some extra research that would really give some, some insight into the decisions that they're making. You go the second mile. What does that do to them? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Verse 42, possessions. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't know about you, but I, I get solicitations everywhere. Um, at my door, at the grocery store. I get lots in the mail from organizations, from family, from friends. I mean, we can be bombarded in our world today to give. Sometimes it's really hard to know where and how and what's the best way I think Jesus is getting at the spirit of how we look at these things. Don't look at them as an inconvenience, but look for ways to be generous. This came right out of the law back in Deuteronomy 15. God is talking about how, uh, we, how we respond to those who are in a more impoverished situation than we are. He says, give to them freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. This has always been God's desire for us to be a generous, merciful, giving kind of people. So don't be irritable when somebody asks you for money. And if one of our youth writes you a letter asking for support on a missions trip or whatever, look at it with joy, not an inconvenience. I just made it easier for a lot of you youth that are going on a missions trip this summer. You can talk to me later. I'll tell you which coffee shop I like. <laughs> but we should use wisdom. Um, if we just take these words of Jesus carte blanche, we, we might actually give money and help when it, that it would hurt. And so we need to use wisdom. Uh, we, we, it's good to give through organizations like our aid and assistance here. We have a whole protocol in which we can help people in way that, ways that won't hurt them. Other organizations as well, like Salvation Army, and whatnot, have ways that we can give that really, really helps. And that's, let's just be honest. Sometimes we're out there in the street and somebody approaches us and we don't know what to do. We need, we need wisdom for those situations, but we want to have a generous spirit. We don't want our possessions to cause us, when people are taking from our possessions by their ask, we don't want that to create an irritable spirit within us, but one of generosity and care and love and mercy. So Jesus has given us four areas of our lives. Respect, security, possession, self-determination. 
He has extrapolated the law to new places. So that is demanding. I mean, you can't read this and not feel that the demand of this is challenging. If it's not challenging for you, I mean, I find this so challenging. And I think so, so many times we've anesthetized Jesus, like we've, we've dumbed Jesus down so that we don't allow the things that he says challenge us, really reach us where it needs to reach us. Jesus is touching some of our idols, the things that are way too important for us, our right to be respected, our security and comfort, our self-determination, our rights, our money. And he's calling us to live a different way. Matthew will later write Jesus' invitation. Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. He that lays down his life will find it. But if you try and keep it and hoard these things, you're not going to find the life that Jesus wants for us and for our world. Chances are God is giving you an opportunity to practice some of the things he's talked about here Right now, in your life, in your situations, where you are. Let's remember that Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. The giving giving away of his rights is supremely demonstrated in his life, his incarnation, and his death. Jesus suffered humiliation. He was unjustly brought to court in a a gross mistrial of justice. He was forced to carry his cross, and he did so willingly, knowing that in one moment he could call a legion of angels and be set free. But because he went to the cross, and the ultimate victory that we talked about earlier, that he won for us, he has saved us from our sins and given us a new life when we place our faith and trust in him, that we can live in a new way. But we've got to die to the old. And when we die, just like Jesus, we experience a new kind of life, free from the opinions of others, free from the need to have security in anything else but Him, free to give up our rights because I'm free inside, and free from the love of money. True life, true freedom. Because my respect, our respect, our dignity is found in Jesus. Our security is found in Jesus. Our determination is found in Jesus. Our wealth is found in Jesus. So that the offenses in this world do not hit us in the way they used to and our response is completely of another world. The better way. A couple of summers ago, uh, you know that there was a small team of us went to the uh, church in Mexico that we've developed and are developing a partnership with, La Cantera. We were with them for a few days, and on the Sunday when we were there, after the church service, we went to one of the uh, people's homes, and we sat in a big room, and uh, we took the time to share our stories with one another so I could really get to know one another. It was incredibly moving. And one of the stories that I will never forget is the the story of their worship leader, Lorenzo. And um, many of the people in their church were first-generation Christians. They didn't grow up in homes that professed Jesus. They had come to him from really rough backgrounds. Lorenzo had been part of a gang. He was not a, a guy of big stature. He was small, but he was tough as nails, and so he was a real fighter. 
He was used to taking vengeance on people. Like if somebody got him or his gang, like he would be the guy that would instigate the revenge. So Lorenzo told us about an experience he had in, when he was in that place in life. He was riding on a bus, and somewhere on the bus, I think it was at the back, was a guy who was standing, and he was proclaiming Jesus. He was just speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as this was going on, there were some other rough guys. Not, Lorenzo was not part of their group. But there were some other rough guys that were there, and they started mocking this man. And then one of them spit on his face. The man took it, wiped it, didn't retaliate, didn't respond. That seemed to be the end of the story. No conflict escalated. The guys had their fun. They had their mockery. But it shook Lorenzo. A guy who was used to taking revenge just saw a man absorb an offense and respond in love. It began in him the journey towards Christ and was the catalyst that moved him to a conversion where he committed his life to our Savior, Jesus. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. Your faith is in him. He is calling us to, to live in, in extravagant ways. But let's remember what we've received from him. We've received his extravagant forgiveness. We've received his extravagant love. We've received his extravagant power in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we can live extravagantly in mercy and grace. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say unto you something different. I'm going to ask for, for God just to help us and enable us in our place where we're at. Lord, this morning we thank you for your powerful words from Jesus. Lord, as we hear them, we, we know we are completely unable to walk in this high calling that you've called us to. We thank you that Jesus has, that he's walked in this kind of other world maturity, other world beauty, Lord. And so we know, Lord, as we put our faith and trust in you, that you can empower us to live the life that Jesus has already lived. And in fact, you can live his life through us. That's what we're asking for, Lord. Help us not to lower the bar to our expectations, Lord, but to see where the bar has been set by you and to realize that your Holy Spirit's going to help us, Lord, to move towards that. I just want to pray, Lord, for each of us in this, in this room, Father, whatever circumstances we're in now or are going to be facing in the near future, Lord, where we're called, Lord, to respond to offense, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do so in a way that reflects the love that we've received from you. Come, Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.